Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's weekly podcast keeping you up to date and fully informed, more perhaps than you might want to be, on all things Brexit. This week, as the next round of Brexit talks gets underway in Brussels, with little hope of any real breakthrough, we're going to be looking instead at what we know, with the main party conferences behind us, about where Labour and the Conservatives stand on the big Brexit issues, and how far their positions might shift, or might have to shift. So what did we learn in Brighton and Manchester? Well, the Labour conference voted to back the party's official position on Brexit, but only after criticism from many of its own MPs for avoiding any debate on the question whatsoever. The statement said the party is clear that we need a tariff and impediment-free trading relationship with the EU, whatever that means exactly, but that the precise form of the new trading and customs relationship needs to be determined by negotiation. Keir Starmer, the shadow Brexit secretary, was equally cautious, saying Labour wanted a new progressive partnership with the EU that mirrored single market benefits and that remaining in a customs union was a possible end destination for Labour. But it was pretty unclear on whether all this should be done by negotiating a whole new bespoke deal or extending an off-the-shelf one. And he said he believed a Brexit deal could be achieved that would be as good as being in the EU. So, not a great deal of what you might call clarity there. But at least it avoided opening up any damaging splits over Brexit in a party that, when you actually look at it, is as deeply divided on the question of Europe as is its rival. Speaking of whom, the Conservatives, well, they came into their conference in Manchester with Theresa May's Florence speech ringing in their ears. Concessions on citizens' rights and the European Court of Justice, a promise that no EU member state would lose out financially as a result of Brexit during the current budget period, an acknowledgement that a two-year status quo transition period was going to be necessary, and finally a faintly desperate call on the EU to be flexible and creative. But delegates were equally aware that her rebellious foreign secretary, Boris Johnson, had just given an interview to The Sun, setting out his own personal Brexit red lines, at least two of which appeared to undermine the Prime Minister's position. And that for all the protestations of unity, the Cabinet is deeply, perhaps fatally, divided on almost everything to do with Brexit. There's one camp, the Pragmatists, led by Chancellor Philip Hammond, that's pushing for a lengthy transition period and a final status as close to the single market as possible, so as to limit the fallout for business. 
And another camp, led by Johnson, wants a quick, clean break that leaves the EU with as few ties to Europe as possible and free to set sail across the wide open seas for a glorious, free-trade, low-regulation future. Now, Theresa May made very little mention of Brexit in her tragicomic concluding conference speech, while the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg were talking of Brexit in terms of Agincourt and Trafalgar and and swearing that, that Britain has nothing whatsoever to lose from a no deal. And in fact, it was very notable that the loudest cheers in Manchester came for those like him promising the hardest possible cliff edge kind of Brexit. Anyway, the Prime Minister delivered very little further clarity in her common statement on Monday, beyond saying that Britain was leaving the EU again, but still wanted a dynamic, creative and unique partnership. And somewhat provocatively, of course, she said the ball was now in the EU's court. So where actually are we? Do Britain's two main political parties know what they want from Brexit? If not, then why not? And what might be coming down the pipeline in the next few weeks and months that might force them both to grasp the nettle and finally, if you'll pardon the mixed metaphors, get off their respective fences? With me to throw some bright light on the Brexit murk are The Guardian's Brexit policy editor Dan Roberts and political editor Heather Stewart. Let's start with Labour, shall we? So... Um, you know, pro-EU members who were hoping for some kind of vote or even a discussion, really, come to that, on the meat of Brexit. And these big kind of questions like, you know, continued free movement and permanent membership of the single market were deeply disappointed, weren't they, Heather? Because the party chose not to actually talk about it at all. They did, although they vo- that was a vote among members about what they should discuss. And in a way, it was kind of good old fashioned party management, which is we we know there's a split about this. Let's not rehearse it by voting on it on the floor and revealing <laughs> that we're deeply divided. It was a rather sort of, you know, do I say it, Blairite sort of party management <laughs> ra- rather than, uh, you know, it, I, there was a vote about, about it. And there was lots of lively discussion, as you say, on the fringes and around the edges. Mm. Um, and there are these sort of campaign groups that have been set up, including, including you know, kind of Labour for a single market and lots of different groups that are voicing these views, which are somewhat different from the front benches. Well, exactly. I mean, so what is, can you just lay out the problem for us? What, you know, where, where precisely is this split in the party? Is it, I mean, is it, I mean, it's, it's kind of a three-way, isn't it, really? You've got a, you've got a, a kind of a party leadership, uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, who are, you know, traditionally have uh, have that 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 old left sceptical yeah, view instinct, of Europe. Yeah, but they are of a- sort of Benite Eurosceptics. They they backed Remain during the campaign because many of the members who helped Jeremy Corbyn sweep to the Labour le- leadership, younger members, mm. many of them, feel, felt very very strongly that they wanted to stay in the EU. And you know, Corbyn sort of said, "I'm a Democrat, so I'll back Remain." But you know, the, the passion the passion wasn't quite there in the way that it was during, for example, the general election campaign. But yes, they are they their sort of deep down view would be a kind of Benite Lexeter approach, which is the EU constrains us from doing some of the things that good socialists should and want EU, to do. A, and by the way, capital cons, capitalist constructs. Yes, a neoliberal yeah, kind yeah, of club. Yeah. And by the way, look what they did to Greece, etc. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and yet, and then you know, on the other side, Dan, clearly there are large areas of support in in the Labour heartlands who are firmly pro Brexit. Um, yes, I think in a way, Labour's anti-Europe 
uh, wing is perhaps closer in step with the mood of the people who voted in the referendum than the Tory anti-Brexit wing, because the Tories have tried to reinvent themselves as this sort of have tried to reinvent the vote as a sort of uh, as a cry for for liberalisation, as a cry for globalisation. You know that Europe was holding us back from from striding forth into the new mm. markets of the world, which, to my mind, is 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 totally sort of trying to kind of stick uh, uh, their own version of of the truth on 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 the sort of slightly kind of less. Uh, exciting reality which is that the referendum was a cry against globalization the referendum was 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 people fearing the change that was rippling through their their societies and 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 seeing europe as a sort of a uh, as an emblem of that and i think that the kind of euroscepticism that we see from john mcdonnell in particular is much closer in step to that mood which is a protectionist mood mm. which is a sort of let's pull up the jaw bridges let's um let's have much more state intervention in industry to protect workers from the consequences of those chill winds of globalization and the and and so what fascinates me is um whether labor can tap into that i mean it's it's it 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 clearly a lot of its members are very um uh, still very pro europe and very anxious about brexit mm. but a lot of the voters mm. i suspect could be interested in that message if they can get it right and i mean the the, the sort of the, the sad irony in this is that you know it will be if you if you listen to the economists at least you know it looks very likely to be uh, the voters in precisely those sort of left behind post industrial parts of Britain, what have you, who will be those that are, will suffer most from from Brexit? Yeah, that's the risk. It depends what kind of deal we get. But yes, those, those it, it's in many cases the kind of manufacturing industries, for example, which are in a lot of those areas, which mm. may well suffer if supply chains start to fall apart because there is you know new barriers are put up, for example. I mean, obviously we don't know quite where we're going to end up, but yeah, that's that's absolutely right. But I mean, I think Dan's right that it, it, almost immediately after. After the vote, Corbyn and his kind of team had uh, an analysis of what the Brexit vote meant, which was all about kind of communities that felt left behind, you know, bits of the country that had been kind of neglected, that had been allowed to decay, you know, whereas Theresa May had this rather different Mm. sort of patriotic interpretation, which she rehearsed over and over again during the general election campaign, which was which was her thinking about the UKIP vote, the Tories thinking about the UKIP vote and, you know, it's people being rather nostalgic for a sort of 50s type past and wanting Britain to sort of rule the waves again and all those Mm. kinds of things. And actually that didn't appear, the general election result seemed to tell us that Labour's interpretation perhaps was somewhat closer to many voters Mm. than than the Tories Mm. was. Mm. But I mean, mean, it still leaves the, 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 the Labour Party leadership with a very difficult circle to square doesn't it i mean how how do they bring those two views together uh you know that their their supporters and voters in the in in the southeast who are fiercely uh uh, pro remain uh and that section of the part of of the uh, of the of the support that's uh that that really is the opposite well i think what was apparent to in Brighton was that they're not going to try and bring them together. They're going to try not to square this circle if they can help it. Um, uh, certainly not before the they next have election. To. Um, um, this is very much 
um, she used the metaphor of the week. The ball is very much in the Tories' court. They're the ones who have to make this work. Mm. Um, and therefore, I think publicly on Brexit, Labour's position is to say as little as possible, as, as we've seen. Mm. Um, to some extent, that's that's understandable, right? I mean, they're not in the room. They're not having to shuttle backwards and forwards to Brussels. They'd like to be, but they're not. There will come a point where there is a deal. There are some details. And at that point, Labour will have to say this is an acceptable deal or this isn't. And they might may find their MPs are deeply divided. But there was a stage where they were tying themselves up in knots over, you know, how precisely Labour should respond to the feeling that immigration was too mm. high, for example. And there are deep divisions over that. But in a sense, why rehearse them here and now when what you really need to do is be ready to respond to whatever deal the government I think that, comes up that, with? That sort of makes sense. It's, it's, it's naked, cynical politics that will appall many Remainers on the <laughs> left. But nonetheless, you can see the logic of that. I would I'd love to hear your thoughts on a, on a counter sort of strategy, though, that, that the leadership could adopt, which is to say that the thing that's most likely to bring this government down and hasten an election is to be much more proactive on Brexit and and, and play the Tory splits, try to peel off the, the Remain wing of the Tory party, try and well, peel off. And, and that that's, the, that's the fastest way to get Corbyn into number 10, if that is the aim. And that the danger of their let's not talk about this is it gives the Tories four years to work it out. Well, and so interestingly, I think that was what... So we had this sort of deal that was struck on the Labour front or in the Labour shadow cabinet mm. over the summer about a transition deal, which had... Uh, Keir Starmer come out and say, we think we should continue to be members of the customs union in the mm. single market during a transition. And part of the rationale for that, so there are people around Corbyn who feel quite uncomfortable with the, right. the idea or co- very concept of single market membership, let alone carrying on with it. But part of the rationale behind that, so the unions were pressing hard there, but part of the rationale was because there are people like John McDonnell, for example, who think this is the way, the more we can push here, the more we can make headway against the Tories. So, uh, you know, and... and uh, I suspect he's something somewhat more of a pragmatist than some of the others. But, I, you know, they, they are very keen to kind of make waves on this and they're very keen to attack the Tories where they can. So you're right. I think if there are points at which they think they could sharpen up their line and, and have an impact and, and expose the splits among the Tories, then they will try and do that, I think. But the, but the overall, I mean, the line is they, they are sticking pretty much to this kind of constructive ambiguity idea, really, aren't they? Not really firmly coming down on, on one side of the fence or the other. How long? I mean, Dan, you mentioned until the next election. Is do do you think they can hold that line for? Well, it becomes harder as bits of as the legislation starts rolling through, doesn't it? So the government has we've got a two-year parliamentary session. The government has a whole series of bills it needs, the EU withdrawal bill, but a number of others as well. And obviously, we already had even after the general election, there was already a split where some Labour backbenchers who felt very strongly the government should be trying to stay in the single market, mm. Chucker Ramona, Stephen Doughty, mm. and others, tabled an amendment which then. And, you know, a lot of MPs, including some of the new intake, backed against the whip imposed by the front bench. So, you know, which exposed the divisions. To some extent, this idea of the transition deal quietens that down a little bit because the Chuckermanners and others think, great, we seem to be heading in the right direction. And the Lexiters think, okay, but it doesn't commit us to stay. A little bit bit similar to the way the Tories are patching up their own divisions at the moment. But as we see those votes rolling through, there are Labour MPs who feel extremely strongly about these things and who've made particular arguments to their constituents during the election campaign who will feel that they have to vote, uh, you know, against particular kinds of immigration system, for example, or against aspects of the EU withdrawal. I suppose my concern with that uh, sort of approach by Labour is that it it looks what it is, quite cynical, sort of 
cherry picking of arguments, trying to bring down the, the government votes here and there where they can, without positing a sort of a much more coherent anti-Brexit narrative, which could bring together the broad coalition and could could make Corbyn look prime ministerial in the eyes of many people. I mean, but their great worry about that, their great worry about that, which was that they're they fear that a lot of their voters, a lot of traditional Labour voters, and actually Labour didn't do terribly well among working class voters in the mm. general election. Um, their great fear is that they look as if they're rejecting the well, will of the people. So they, they have the to get, they, but they have to get to the voters first. I mean, through, the trouble yeah. is, but if you, if you want to bring the election forward, anything less than four years, um, you correct me because you're, you're much more on top of this than me. But you've got to have two thirds of the of MPs voting to overturn the Fixed Parliament Act, right? So yep. you've got to persuade a substantial number of Tory voters that the prospect of bringing down the government uh, is worth doing if it's going to save the country and not deliver us to a sort of awful Brexit. You could imagine Labour adopting a line of we are the party of the single market. We, we consider it, you know, that in the interests of the country that, that we have to stay as close I as possible. I think that's highly unlikely under Jeremy Corbyn, but yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. <laughs> does Jeremy, I mean, just finally, just wrapping up on Labour now, does Jeremy Corbyn understand the single market and the, uh, and the concept of... Ta- well, this, this line about tariff-free and impediment-free access that he keeps coming out with. Is that all constructive ambiguity or is there a real lack of kind of... Because essentially that's impossible without being in the single well, market. Well, it, it is, but nonetheless, it's what every single senior politician in Britain is, is spouting. And uh, Keir Starmer, who is a bright chap and ought to know better, spouts the same mm. line. Um, I don't know how much Corbyn really understands this, um, uh, but there are plenty of people around him who should and nonetheless fudge it. I mean, I sat next to John McDonnell at a conference fringe event that I chaired with him in the CBI a couple of weeks ago and asked him some quite specific questions, questions about on. things like, for example, does the, the does the EU, will it get in the way of your nationalisation plan, which is what I think one of the big things. Mm. You know, he gave a very, very detailed coherent answer he's clearly thought about this quite a lot so i think they are deliberately fudging it rather than accidentally fudging it if that's okay yeah well as i think we'd have to conclude for the time being at least are the conservatives really either there seems a bit of a truce in the internecine warfare at least temporarily at the moment i thought it was quite striking um that after uh, the Prime Minister's common statement yesterday, both Boris Johnson and Michael Gove sort of, you know, took to social media to to support her and perhaps more importantly, accept this notion of uh, the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice during the transition period, which was a potential real red line for kind of hardline Brexiters. But I suppose, I suppose the real question is, how long is this going to last? I mean, we've only recently, you know, tw- over the weekend seen, you know, these these calls for sort of, you know, Brexiters calling for, 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 for Hammond to be sacked and, and Remainers calling for Boris to be sacked. I mean... Wh- it is an it's an absolutely extraordinary situation i think and it shows you the depth of feeling on both sides of this argument in the tory party about it i mean when when did we last see a kind of open cabinet revolt of this kind day after day weekend after weekend in the press with one side I mean, boris johnson said earlier in the week that he's, he was fed up with these alleged friends of his you know <laughs> briefing allegedly briefing the press <laughs> but you know it's going on all the time and it's pretty extraordinary it's because and it's because there is an extraordinary depth of feeling and both 
of these camps have backers, you know, throughout mm. the back benches who are and in out there in the world of sort of think tanks who are egging them on mm. and who feel that this is an overriding issue. And I think the difference between Tory party and the Labour party is, it seems to me there are fewer on the Labour side. For Jeremy Corbyn, whether we're in or out of the EU is not an overriding issue that trumps everything else. On the Tory side, there are many for whom that's absolutely right. And you're right, there was a truce, a sort of truce yesterday. And I was interested to see, because this idea of the ECJ continuing to have jurisdiction mm. during a transition apparently was one of Boris Johnson's red lines, which yeah. seems to be rather fuzzy um, and perhaps not red at all. <laughs> but um, uh, it, it, it was very striking that he and Gove used the same language which was about we should be pragmatic and flexible about and a transition end, in order to buy counts. ourselves yeah. maximum divergence from the EU yeah. in the end state. Yeah. And just like Labour, the Tories have managed to reach some sort of painful truce about the tr- nature of a transition deal. Mm. There is no agreement about how, what an end state should yeah, look like. Yeah, yeah. That's so the problem. It's, it's merely, it's kind of postponing the inevitable. Yeah, and unlike Labour, they're actually having to be d- in that room. It, yeah. Implement it, yeah. So, I mean, Dan, I mean, the, the, the battle is basically then between those who, who want to give priority to, to protecting the economy, essentially, I suppose, by staying as close to the single market as possible, and those who want maximum control and and you know maximum sort of uh, sovereignty um i mean it, we're talking really aren't we about the same old tory divide over europe the the tory divide indeed that produced the referendum in the first place kind of playing it itself out in live you know live and and the stakes are unbelievably high yes i mean in a way it's it's worse than that which is because i i wish that were the divide i wish there was an open cabinet discussion about sort of sovereignty versus economic access but it, it, it instead they're still hiding officially at least behind this fib that you can have our cake and eat it that we can um in theresa may's words only yesterday in the house that we can do what no other country has uh, has ever managed to to do and basically convince europe to throw up its borders to us without uh, any sort of responsibilities in in return and the trouble is all the time they hide behind that fiction and we've been saying in this building for some time that's a fiction but you don't have to rely on us anymore you can look at this the complete standstill mm. in the talks in brussels to see that clearly it's a fiction but all the time they hide behind that i i, I sort of fear that actually what we're seeing within the Tory cabinet is personality squabbling that yes, they wear the badge of ideology. Yes, that Boris is sort of embracing this notion that he's more for freedom and less for sort of market access or whatever. But really, mm. it's about him and it's about schoolboys sort of, you know, just squabbling. Um, and, and we're not having up a with proper that. open debate. But it's, mm. it's not clear to me that if you sacked the lot of them and got, <laughs> got you know, went, went to the sort of next layer behind, got, got, a, got a bunch of backbenchers in, it's not clear to me that you would come out with a particularly maybe you could hold the debate more openly perhaps and you could be a bit more pragmatic yeah. but there would still be Jacob Rees-Mogg and we saw his extraordinary draw at conference and all that talk about Agincourt and all the rest yes. god but you know those people would still exist and they would still have a considerable following among Tory MPs and in particular among the yeah. Tory and, and, membership and a, in, they're not in, going in, anywhere those people in a go- and crucially in a government which has without a majority essentially uh, I mean those people I mean you know Steve Baker and his 
70 strong WhatsApp group. I mean, they are. Yeah, well, he's now minister, of course, Steve <laughs> Baker. So, the, so the, the, the European Research Group, which he used to chair, which is the kind of, you know, intensely pro-Brexit backbenchers, they, they now go in and lobby Steve Baker, which is a sort of extraordinary situation. Yeah. But, but they, it's a, in some respects, they're very loud and vociferous. And you're right, in Manchester, they were the only game in town. But they've been incredibly meek at rolling over at what is an astonishing um, admission of defeat in the shape of this transition deal. I mean, Jake, Jacob Rees-Mogg's sort of bleating about the ECJ yesterday was sort of perhaps the last hurrah of this. But when Boris agreed, signed off on the Florence speech, they basically agreed of two years of a vassal state. It was all the where their worst nightmares come true. Yeah, continuing to pay in, accepting taking all the rules, having no say on what what. And they they rolled over because they had no choice. They they boxed themselves into the corner. The government had basically run out of road in Brussels at the talks. Realised it had no leverage, and the only thing to stop all the wheels falling off was to basically say, "Ah, time out for two years now (laughs) if these people really felt that that was the gross betrayal of brexit i think you'd see more than jacob reese mogg making a little bit of bleating off in the sidelines you'd actually see cabinet members saying no no we can't do that but they know they can't because they know that there is no um alternative they have i think the language the reason the language of johnson and gove was interesting yesterday is is because they've clearly accepted this almost as a quid pro quo for the sort of ends or they think they have for the sort they think they have for the sort of end state that they would like which is one where we have more freedom to, yes. you know, change the rules and to deregulate mm. if we want but to, to so, diverge as as, but just as to Gove play from Brussels. Advocate, and I know you're not, <laughs> you're just positing their school of thought, but just to, to argue against that for a second, what do they think is going to change in two years' time? I mean, what do they what, how, what do they think is going to make it any easier to get this magic sort of cake? And well, and bear option? in mind the government line that in David Davis's mind, in, in the mind of the government, we're not. This is not a transition deal so that we can carry on talking. They want the outlines of the final state, as mm. we're now calling it, mm. to be done. They want that they want that framework to be drawn up before well, we leave. It's, it's not it's not two more years to talk. It's yeah, you know, sure. two more years I, to implement what we've decided. Period. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I don't I I, I Perhaps I've missed something, but I didn't think. I, I thought they had acknowledged that a free trade agreement was going to take longer to negotiate. The um, details of it, but they want but the, the framework under, and, in well, place. And indeed, under so we art- know what we're transitioning towards. But, but under, art- under Article Fifty, the, the framework has to be in place. The, the, the future frame, the framework, the outline has to be in place uh, as part of the, the Article Fifty deal. In fact, mm. but I mean, but which means that. Um, you know, the, the, the choices here are going to have to be made quite soon, aren't they, really? Uh, I mean, you know, and not least because the EU are now openly saying, the EU 27, that, you know, that, that the government is simply too divided for us to take these guys seriously, really. How, how can we really believe what they're saying when you've got one, you know, a prime minister saying one thing, a Brexit secretary saying another, or a foreign minister saying another? I mean, that. That's a bit of a handicap in the negotiations, isn't it? It's also quite a cynical move on the part of the EU27. At the end of the day, they have to deal with the government we (laughs) present. It's not their, you know, they're playing the game just as as we um, are, yeah. um, uh, My worry is we've got the perfect storm. Um, We've got all the ingredients now for this to end very nastily in. uh, and, and Britain crashing out without a deal. You've got one wing of the Tory party, say the pragmatists, Theresa May arguably, who are now positing a, uh, a no-deal scenario to obtain leverage. They want to look like they've got options. OK, fair enough, that might be the best they can do. But you've got another wing of the Tory party that actually would quite like that. That's not just plan B, that's plan A, as far as, the, as, far as they're concerned. And you've got Brussels, which is now openly contemptuous of the government and its whole, whole approach. That, to me, points 
us it very rapidly in the direction of where where Theresa May storms out. We have you know these threats become real, and we do we do crash out. I think that I would put the odds of us crashing out now ahead of the odds of us achieving hmm. some sort of deal, and that's the first time I felt that in this process, and it's terrifying. Heather, do you share well, that share that view? I don't, but I I I do I do think it's become more likely than I would have thought it was you know, two or three or six months ago, because this group of people for whom you're right, it's it's a desirable, there's a group of people on the Tory mm. right for whom this is a, the desirable outcome. But And the more that the talks seem to be heading towards a sort of a rather pragmatic, you know, sort of Philip Hammond, you know, mm. bow, binding us very closely into EU rules and regulations in order to secure market access, the more they're going to want a no deal Brexit, because that that's not the kind of Brexit that they want, one one that involves us have, still having to obey the rules. And so, 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 yes, she was saying it as a sop yesterday, but I, I do think it, it's it's more likely than we might have thought it was. She's a playing a game of chicken, but the other side don't believe there's anybody, you know... That, well, she's, that, the problem she, she's is gonna... she's playing two games of chicken. She's playing chicken with the EU27, but she's also playing chicken with her own mm. back, back, back benches who are very noisy, very popular with her grassroots, you know, and sh- she is very weak. So it's it's very hard. I mean, I do think one thing that will start to happen is that the rubble will start to hit the road with business and that we'll start to see investment decisions being made on the basis that mm. businesses... But the, every time the government says we're planning for no deal, businesses have to start planning for no deal and you know, we will start to feel the impact of that. And it I seems think to me. the thing I picked up in Manchester was just how little time we've got now. That that basically, in less than six months, we approach the one year anniversary of Article Fifty. One year shy of potentially a car crash Brexit. Lots of businesses have no choice but to. Uh, press the button on their contingency plans. I mean, I was talking to airline bosses who were mm. saying they can't sell tickets 12 months ahead without knowing that they've got the legal framework in order to, to, to be able to offer those flights when they get there. Um, we know that the banks are making similar um, precautions. They, it's not just now um, precautions. They feel legally obliged to take these to steps because that. they cannot say to their customers, yes, we can do this. They strike contracts well over a year in advance for many many of these, especially in the, the city. They're selling sort of complex products that need legal certainty. So I, I think well before March 2018, never mind 2019, we will see, as Heather says, some very, very chilling responses from, from business that may well force the pace of this. Is the, I mean, just to conclude here, is the government going to last that long? Who knows? It's, it's, it's incredibly difficult to say, but it's, it's very hard to find Many people in the Tory party that think Theresa May, nobody thinks she can last until the next general election, although they keep parroting it. But it, when you've got open revolt on the scale that we've seen and, and you know, briefing and counter briefing and tea room chat, it, it, it just feels terribly unstable. It would feel terribly unstable even if there wasn't a kind of deep ideological divide behind all of it. Exactly. Uh, Is there going to, I mean, can, can she carry out a reshuffle? Is she going to attempt to reshuffle? I think she will attempt to. I think she will attempt to reshuffle. Um, she really needs to reassert her authority and mm. show that she's in charge. And, you know, her cabinet were going around when Johnson was charging about with his red lines. Her cabinet were going around saying no one is unsackable. Well, there's only way, one way of proving that, isn't there? My worry is that her one function for the Tories was to get Brexit done mm. so that then they could move on and somebody mm. else could take over. And at the moment, I don't think she's got the authority to get Brexit done on any terms. Um, and that's uh, she's got such a uh, a bumpy road ahead of her in the next few few weeks, let alone months. I mean, she's got to get the um, 
great repeal bill through the committee stage. I was like, oh, God knows how many amendments. Any one of them could could trip her up from any direction. She's got talks that are pretty much ground to a halt. She's got to basically up the divorce bill by another 10 or 20 yeah. billion at least to get to the next stage by Christmas to that. I mean, just but if you, any one of those would trip over a strong prime minister. Yeah. And she's one not a strong no prime minister. The flip side of that, of course, is that if you're one of those who's a potential leadership candidate, particularly if you're a slightly younger potential leadership candidate who's looking at that, do you want to be the person to do yeah. all of that? Which is <laughs> why do, I think Boris Or is do saying, you want to let her do that? Do you want to come in, up, come in afterwards? On and, your you yeah. know, white charger to rescue everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why I think Boris is going around telling himself and his friends to stop briefing about the fact he wants to be prime minister. He's probably going Get, not right now yeah that's it I'm afraid for this week we've run out of time Um, thank you both very much Heather and Dan for joining me today please subscribe review on all your favourite podcatchers join the discussion on Twitter you just need to search for Guardian Podcasts if you want to get in touch it's Brexit Podcast that's all one word Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com till next week I'm John Henley the producer was Rowan Slaney this was Brexit Means and thank you very much for listening For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.